Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And our text this morning will be verses 19 and 20 as we continue our study of Romans. But we will read verses 18 to 23 to set these verses in context. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Join with me in prayer before we go to the word of God this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you that it has been given to us in human language for us to understand, that it has been translated into our language that we might know it. We praise and thank you that we are not left on our own, but you have given us the Holy Spirit to illuminate these truths for us. And so this morning, again, we ask that your Holy Spirit teach us through the word this morning, that we might hear your voice through the pages of Scripture, that we might be transformed by it, and that we might be more in the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. To the praise of the glory of your grace, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, there has always been that question as to how can people be responsible to God if they've never heard the gospel? After all, it's just really not fair. How can God send some people to hell who have never heard the gospel at all? After all, they never had a chance. That's just not right. It doesn't meet my standards of justice, that is for sure. And in fact, man has grappled with that idea throughout church history. And there has been various responses. There have been those like Robert Schuller and even Billy Graham who have who have taught, well, actually, there's a wider mercy view. There's a wider mercy. In other words, God is merciful to those who have never heard the name Jesus just as long as they are sincerely seeking after God. After all, it's only fair and right. Christ died for sin for all people, but obviously, if they haven't heard the name of Christ, they can't come in the name of Christ. But it is their sincerity that ultimately leads them to be able to be saved, no matter which religion they're in. Well, Paul takes a pin to that balloon here in our passage, and he takes all the air out of that balloon. And he actually says, 
The wrath of God is revealed against heaven. It's continually being revealed against on ungodliness and righteousness of men who what, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And re- false religions, far from being sincere searching for God, is actually the suppression of the truth and actually turning away from God. And so Paul will have no thought that you can come to God in any other way than through the gospel. And in fact, that's exactly why he's saying we need the gospel, because there is no other way except through the gospel. We are des- in desperate trouble. There's, we are unrighteous. God is righteous. God is wrathful against unrighteousness. And you need a righteousness that you can't have, that you don't have, that you can't earn, and that you can never measure up to. Now, I want to remind us, and so as we go through our passage today, we will really look at God's revelation to to mankind. Not a saving revelation, but a revelation that makes man responsible. And we will see God's declaration, the, the declaration of God's revelation, the timing of God's revelation. We will see the content of that revelation. We will see the means of that revelation. And ultimately, we will see the purpose of that revelation, and he will reveal that to us today. Now, I want to remind you of Paul's flow of thought. After some introductory uh, comments in the first 15 verses, we get to verses 16 to 17, and he introduces the theme of this letter. It is the gospel. It is the gospel And the heart of the gospel of message is justification by faith. He says, for the righteous man shall live by what? By faith. This is how salvation comes. It's not something you can earn. It can only come through justification by faith in Christ alone. And so he begins in verse 18 to show that the gospel message is absolutely critical. Because apart from the gospel, if you are not, have not been saved by the gospel, you are presently under the wrath of God. You are condemned before him. And so Paul begins from here through verses, chapter 3, verse 20, to prove man's universal need for the gospel. And he shows, sets out and shows that every human being without exception needs that righteousness from God, the righteousness that the gospel promises. And it comes not through works, not through being good enough, but simply by being received by faith. So the person who doesn't claim to work, Now, as we start here, verses 18 to 32, we're really dealing, we said, with the person who doesn't claim to worship the true God. And this, many of those people have never even heard of the Christian God at all. In fact, they are in religions and in places where they have never actually had access to hear the name of Jesus. But it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Literally, the wrath of God is being revealed against these people. So how can God be angry with people who have never heard his name? Would you be mad at your children if if they didn't do something that you wanted them to do but you didn't tell them to do? 
Well, maybe, but that's not, but you shouldn't, right? But so how can God hold them responsible? Why is God having his wrath revealed against immoral pagans who don't know anything about him, who have never heard the name of Jesus? Well, in 18 to 38, 23, God says why God's wrath is revealed. In verses 24, he says how it's revealed. So why is God's wrath revealed? Why is, why is he upset? He says, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who what? suppress the truth. In other words, God is upset with men because they are suppressing his truth. They know something about him and they are suppressing it. They suppress it in ungodliness. They have a lack of fear of God. They have a lack of love for God. They have a lack of worship. These are three things that God demands. And ungodliness goes against all of those things. They go against the person of God. They refuse him. They refuse to worship him. They refuse to love him. There's a lack of reverence for him. This is personal. He's also another expression of rebellion against God's law. He says it's unrighteousness, a lack of conformity in our thinking and speaking and behaving, a lack of conformity to God's law, ultimately a lack of character to him. And so God is angry with them because they are suppressing the truth about his law. But now he says he's willfully ignorant of God's person. Man just does not, is not rebelling against God's law, but they are willfully ignorant of the person of God. They suppress that truth. And we suppress it because we love our sin. That is the nature of man. So again, the question then becomes, how do, they, how do they suppress something they don't know? They don't have the Bible. They don't have the Word of God written for them. They've no, no one's ever witnessed to them. How can God be just? How can He be right? And Paul says, actually, because God has revealed Himself. In fact, He declares it. He declares Him. God has revealed Himself. Every sinner knows about the one true God. Everyone has an understanding of this. Look at verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Could be rendered that which is knowable about God. In other words, we can't, my finite man can't know everything about God, but whatever is knowable and can be known is evident within them. Paul's point is that everything that, which is capable of being known about God apart from special revelation is indeed known by fallen man. Fallen man knows this and he has a knowledge of this. So Paul says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. It is evident within them. It's incontroversible fact. It is irrefutable man knows because God made it known it is evident it means visible clear plainly seen open in fact 
it is a fact that every sinner knows because God has revealed the truth about himself to them. And so he says it's, it's evident within him. And maybe we could translate that to them or among them. And the idea here is that God has given them a witness, and we'll see within context here, that they have a witness of creation. In other words, they have seen creation, and in seeing creation, they have deduced several things about God from that creation. And therefore, what they have seen by their physical eyes, they have now comprehended in some form in their minds. There's a comprehension. In fact, he says later on, that which is, he says later on in this passage, being understood through that which is made. In other words, there's an understanding here. It's not just that they perceive it and, and are, it's like looking at, at a, a picture where you don't understand what it is. They actually see the picture and they have some comprehension of that picture. There's that, maybe it's a faint outline, but at least they, they actually see something and they understand what, what is being said. Now you're going to wonder, well, how can fallen man know? Because man cannot know God on his own. No one seeks God. And yet it says, for God has made it, what? Evident to them. He's made it evident to them. Literally, the Greek text says, for God caused it to become known to them. God caused it to become known to them. God has made certain truths about himself clear, visible, and plain. Now we think about people in our society now and, and really for the first time probably in history we have people who call themselves atheists and agnostics. Really up until the enlightenment there was no such thing as a worldview that did not believe in God. Why? Because God made it evident to them, right? And what we've seen through history that man is not getting better. Man is continually to demonstrating his depravity and is suppressing the truth in greater and greater ways. So the atheist, he denies the existence of God. He says it's based on a lack of evidence. The agnostic says, well, I'm not sure that there is a God because I, I don't, uh, there isn't enough evidence, right? There's a lack, not, not quite enough. And God says very, very clearly in his word, guess what? That's not true. As one, one man wrote a book, he said, John Blanchard wrote a book with a fascinating title. He wrote, does God believe in atheists? Does God believe in atheists, right? And the answer, according to Romans chapter 1, is what? An emphatic what? No, of course he doesn't. Because he has made it evident to them. God has revealed himself to man with an understanding that they, they know. They know that he is, exists. In fact, according to Paul, when an atheist says, I don't believe in God, an agnostic says, well, I'm really not sure, they're just in different eight stages of suppressing the truth, according to verse 18. They're, they're taking that beach ball that we talked about last week, and they're sitting on top of it, right? The atheist is pretty firm on it. The agnostic is fighting with it a little bit, but eventually that truth is known to them. They have taken what they have known, and they have suppressed it.
So the question then becomes, when did God reveal this truth about himself? And what exactly did he reveal and how well did he reveal it? And so Paul says here, and he answers that question in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now notice, first of all, Paul tells us when. When did God reveal himself? At what time? What's the timing of God's revelation? Well, since the what? Creation of the world. Now, the word world here, cosmos, is used in a lot of different ways in Scripture. It can speak of people, it can, of the world system. But here, he is using it in the idea of the created universe. It's everything in the universe. And so Paul is saying, this revelation that God has made known has been made known since what? The beginning of human history. At very creation, God's, this testimony began. Now, it's very important. Because he doesn't say it started in the first century. Didn't even start with, with the Enlightenment or modern science. He says, God revealed himself, what, from creation. In other words, whatever this revelation is of God, it came, what, at, began at creation and was visible to all men. So Paul says, he, Paul declares that God's revealed himself. He gives us the timing, and then he says, here's the contents. What has God revealed about himself? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes. Stop there. His invisible attributes. Now, God is by nature spirit, therefore he is invisible. The scriptures are pretty clear about that, right? God is spirit. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. Speaking... Uh, of Christ says he is the image of what? The invisible God. To the first Timothy 1.17, as Paul breaks out in a doxology and he, he says, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Right? He dwells in unapproachable light. He cannot be seen. He's invisible. He's spirit. But here, Paul argues that the invisible God has made certain of his invisible attributes visible. In other words, he has made himself visible even though he's invisible. What? Well, think about this. I drive to church several times a week, and I go past a work site. I often say I live vicariously through that work site because it's a beautiful home. And every time I go past, nobody's working in on the house or on the yard. But every time I go past, I see evidence that somebody's been there. And I don't say, wow, I think that house is evolving, right? I'm assuming that there's somebody, there is a, a, a workers that are there that someone has been hired to make that house. And even though I don't see them, I see evidence that they've been there. 
And that's what God does. He is invisible, but he says, actually, I've done some things that make me visible so that you know that I'm there. Just like those workers. I've never seen them working in the yard. I just see the fence go up. I just see the, 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 the uh, cement go down. A little jealous, really. It just seems so easy. <laughs> but God says he made himself visible. Well, what exactly did he make visible? What did he make visible? Well, he, he really makes a reference here to his eternal power. First of all, to his eternal power. And really, that's really two separate attributes of God. And he says, first of all, God is eternal. In other words, as man looks, and, and we'll see that he's looking at creation, as he looks at creation, he recognizes that whoever made this, because how could it come from nothing, that, God, that the creator must have existed before creation. We all know that nothing comes from, from nothing, right? The illustration of the house, I don't say, well, wow, I, I wished I got a fast evolving piece of property like that. I assume somebody's building the house. And so people look at the creation, they look at its complexity, and they immediately know that it must have been made by somebody, and so that somebody had to exist before this began. Right? Ex nihilo, God created something out of nothing, and it, he had to be eternal, not decaying like this, like this earth, but he had to be eternal. The only rational... Th- Thinking logically, philosophically, biblically is that what? There must have been a first cause and it must have been God. Now only a believer can take that logic because the Holy Spirit has to reveal it to him and accept it. But men do have that gnawing in the back of their head. Hey, God must exist and he must be eternal. Now he also says his eternal power. His eternal power. The reality is that God, in, in God, that enables him to do whatever he decides to do is his power. That's his omnipotence. And that's clear. We see that, obviously, because the earth is created and we see the grandeur of the earth. We see the vastness of the heavens. It's, it's, um, it's again, um, to look at the world and say, well, man alive, I, I just... Don't, I think it just came here by chance. Seems unreasonable. Now, we, you can think that way until you start to think about the universe. And as you look about it, you start to say, well, wait a minute. This, this, this is incredible. Listen to this. These are some things that have been uh, compiled by different men. At any given time, there's an average of 1,800 storms in operation around the world. Not just the one over your house, but 1,800. The energy needed to generate those storms amounts to the incredible figure of 1,300,000,000 horsepower. By comparison, a large earthing moving machine has 420 horsepower and requires 100 gallons of fuel a day to operate. 
Just one of those storms producing a rain of four inches over an area of 10,000 square miles would require energy equivalent to burning 640 million tons of coal to evaporate enough water for such a rain. And to cool those vapors and collect them in clouds would take another 800 million horsepower of refrigeration working night and day for 100 days. Think about that pow- the power that we see in storms. Agricultural studies have determined that the average farmer in Minnesota gets 407,510 gallons of water per acre. Right down to 10 gallons. That's pretty good. Per acre, per year, free of charge. They don't have to bring it in. They don't have to pipe it in. They don't have to truck it in. The state of Missouri has some 70,000 square miles and averages 38 rains, inches of rain a year. That amount of water is equal to a lake 250 miles long, 60 miles wide, and 22 feet deep. That's bigger than Rice Lake, right? If the sun radiated energy could be converted to horsepower, it would be equivalent to 500 million million billion horsepower. It's about the size of my Ford Focus. Each second, it consumes some four million tons of matter, four million tons. Like, the earth can't be that old if it's eating up the sun that quick. That light that the sun produces travels at 186,281 miles per second across the Milky Way. The galaxy in which our solar system is located would take 125,000 years to cross. And we're just one galaxy of many. And so as men look at, at, at the universe, there is that witness to them, to the power of God, the power that he makes. He looks at the universe and he says, nothing comes from nothing. The origin of those elements, they must have come from God. And notice Paul says in verse 20, his divine nature. This is a comprehensive term. The Greek word that's used describes those qualities that are normally associated with deity. In other words, Paul is saying man knows their God. He knows that there's an eternal, immensely powerful, supreme being who made all things. Now notice this. Paul argues in a different place that creation shows us that a supreme being is a personal being, not a force. In other words, this just doesn't come by, by mechanics. It didn't just come by accident, but that, that the creator was not just a force, but was a person. He says on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, where he argues with the poets, he says in, he says in Acts chapter 17, being then children of God as men, we ought to think that the divine nature, that's our, our word, we ought to think of the supreme being is like gold, not think that the supreme being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Paul's logic is this. Look around. It's obvious to us. Human beings are the high point of God's creation on this planet 
And it's patently obvious, therefore, that means that God must be a personal being like us. That's what Paul is saying. He's not an inanimate object. He didn't make us an inanimate object. He didn't make us like animals. He made us in his image. Therefore, God has revealed himself as a personal being. So his invisible attributes, specifically his eternity, his power and his deity, his divine nature have been revealed. So Paul says man is without excuse and God is justified in having his wrath against men because God has what revealed himself. He has done it since the creation so there's not one single man that is, it says, well, I, I didn't see it, I missed it. And then he says, this is what I've revealed, that I exist, my eternity, my power, my deity, and my divine nature. Well, how did God reveal himself? What's the means by which he did this? Now notice this, God revealed himself, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, perceived by all men, not only are the truths, truths about God received or knows, but they are understood, specifically understood through and by means of what has been what? Made. In other words, all men's understanding of those things about God by looking at what he has made. In other words, creation is a means by which God demonstrates who he is which means creation itself is not general revelation. Remember, general revelation, and we describe this in, I think, BTI, is God's universal self-disclosure to all men everywhere at all times. It is God's universal self-disclosure to all men at all places at all times. In other words, every single human being has had access to this. So men are without excuse. In other words, creation is God's means to demonstrate his invisible attributes. In other words, general revelation itself is a revelation of God. Not a revelation of, of creation, but it points, creation points to God. And what is important here is that Paul says, not only is there God revealed himself, but he wants to make it very, very clear, being understood, being understood through that which is made. In other words, what God has given God has, to man has also been understood by men, which means God has given man the capacity to understand, to receive that general revelation. We could put it another way. As one writer says, God has put billboards all over the planet, that placard of who he is, and he's given every person the glasses to be able to read it. They get it, they understand it. The problem is not a lack of evidence. It's that man universally chooses to reject that revelation. 
And this is why when we're sharing the gospel with people and people are protesting and they keep protesting and protesting and protesting, they are not seekers who are looking for answers. They are suppressors who are trying to keep the truth down. And don't be fooled by that. Man universally chooses to reject that revelation. He suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And the reality is, until the Enlightenment, every society believed in a deity. They believed in God. There was a witness. In fact, you still go to people, and in their quiet moments, 90% of the globe is still telling you they believe in God. God has made it evident to them. By the way, Scripture makes plain in other places as well that God has left a witness. If we turn, we read this morning Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is a, is a psalm that deals with special and general revelation. In verses 7 to the end, he deals with really the word of God, God's special revelation. But at the beginning of this, he begins with general revelation. And what God has made known through creation. In verse 1 he says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. He says you simply look up. You look at the universe, you look at the sky, you look at the stars, you see everything. And they are declaring the glory of God. In other words, they are showing the weightiness of God. The things that make God impressive. Impressive. They reveal just how great he is. The works of his hands. Again, God doesn't have hands, but it's expressing in human language that God has made the universe. Now notice this message here. It's just not once. It's not just once and then then it's lost. It's not like like a, 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 a voice that goes out and then it's not heard again. It says... Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And again, he's not, spe- he's not saying that it has words, because he says there's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Enough, but, it, but the idea is there is the witness there, and it is constant. Day and night, that message is going out. You can see it in the day as you look at the glorious creation and the trees and and the birds all around you, and at night you see the marvelous sky and, and the moon and the stars. And the idea here is the general revelation speaks in any language. You don't need to learn this language. Everyone can see it. Everyone has it witnessed to them. Verse 4, their line, or possibly their sound, the creation cries out, that has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the earth. In other words, there's no place on earth that this can't be seen. There's no place where you can go to get away from it. It's a little bit like Jonah, right? Jonah tried to get away from God, go in the well, guess what? You can't get away from God's general revelation because everywhere you go, there it is. Jeremiah 5 speaks to this. Jeremiah is dealing with the sins of Israel and the northern tribes as well as Judah. And he says, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people. 
in Jeremiah 5.21, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me, declares Yahweh? Do you not tremble in my presence? Now what evidence is God going to give them? What impetus to fear him and to tremble? He goes to creation and he goes to general revelation. He pulls out one example from creation and he says, For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so that it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. God says, look at the one thing. Just look at how I've established the boundaries of the ocean. And as a result of looking at that, you should what? Fear me. You know how powerful the ocean is. You know how great it is. And yet I control that. It shows my power. It shows my deity. Verse 23, But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed so that they do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God. Then he gives them another reason. He gives rain and seasons, but the autumn rains and the spring rains. They ought to fear God because he's the one who controls the rains for their crops. God's the one, he's Psalm 65, who keeps us for us the appointed weeks of harvest. God sets all of that. He controls all that. God's provision, God's care, that should cause us to fear him. And Paul says, listen, God has revealed himself in creation and it can be understood He has created it and he has given it so that we will see it. Now God reveals himself through other ways. He certainly reveals himself through conscience. In Romans chapter 2 verse 15 he speaks of the Gentiles who have a law written in their hearts, a conscience bearing witness in their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. And Paul says, God, if you think, if you're, if you're a little bit concerned, even though God says very clearly what I have shown you in creation is enough, guess what? God says, I've also put a witness in your heart. I put a witness in your heart. Now, I think in, in chapter one here, he's dealing prim- primarily with the outside external. He's saying, this, the reason, the evidence you see and the evidence you know is looking at creation. Chapter 2, he says, actually, I've even planted something in your heart. I've given you a conscience. You know right and wrong. And every single unbeliever has this in their heart. God has put that in there. They know there's a sense of right and wrong. God also has revealed in general revelation through his providence, through his taking care. We We read in Acts chapter 14. Paul is there with a the lame man and by the power of God to heal that man. And when the crowd saw them, they were what? Thinking they were gods. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. And they wanted to sacrifice to him. And Paul rushed out and says, men, uh, we are the same nature as you and preach good news that you should turn from these th- vain things. A, a living God. Paul says, we're, we're not, don't worship us. We're just human. I said you should turn to a living God. And then he says this in verse 15, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
He is the living God. He's the creator. He is the only God. In generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way, and yet he did not leave himself with what? Without a witness. Notice this. He says it's understood through which it is made, and then he says it's clearly understood. Clearly understood. Just in case, in case you missed it, in case you think that somehow it's not enough, he says it's clearly seen. It's not dimly revealed, nor are his attributes only faintly observed in creation. It's plainly understood. It's plainly seen. It's plainly put out there. The truth of God's existence and character are understood through what that which has been made. Paul wants to make you sure that you don't think that God is unjust. And God can be angry with the wicked and his wrath is revealed because they are willfully suppressing the truth of who he is. And it is a revelation that has been given to them that is clear. Now Paul says in this last line, here's the purpose Here's the purpose of me revealing this to them. Now, it sounds like a result clause as we look here. But Paul is really giving the purpose here in chapter 1, verse 20. He says, so that they are without excuse. So that they are without excuse. And Paul says God can be angry with man because God purposed to give this revelation in order to make man culpable. That was God's purpose in giving it. So that no man could say to him, you are unjust, you are unfair, this shouldn't have happened, I didn't have any knowledge of you. He actually says God gave them this evidence so that for the purpose that they were without excuse. There's no excuse that can be made. They have suppressed that truth rather than actually accepting it. And even though man's ability to understand it has been marred by the fall, God says there's enough evidence and revelation here for man to understood and to accept the light that they have seen. And God says, I have purpose to give this to you so that you will be held accountable. Now remember, general revelation, this, this revelation of God does not save. It has never been meant to save. And in some ways, like the Old Testament law, God has given us general revelation and it is enough to what? condemn. It is enough to demonstrate that men by nature suppress the truth. And God says, I have given you enough truth for the purpose that you will say, cannot say as you stand before me, I didn't know. I had no capacity to know. I had no ability to know. It's not my fault. And God says, actually, I deliberately gave you this so that you would understand. And Paul says, God is absolutely just and right to demonstrate his wrath of abandonment to those who choose to sin and reject his truth because they have rejected the light that they know. And God says that if 
mankind would respond to the evidence that was given to him and worship him as he should and come to him in faith, he would not be condemned. But God says every single person who has rejected general revelation has rejected it willfully because they have suppressed the truth that God has made known to them and they are absolutely 100% culpable before God. Now this is a message in today's environment where most, we have a whole culture that's saying, well, we've evolved. And we've got and a whole culture of people that say, well, I don't believe in God. I, I don't think there is a God and I don't think there's enough proof for God. And we must take God's mindset and we must accept exactly what God says about that. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness and ungodliness. And they, it has been made evident to them. And they are absolutely culpable before God. There are no good people seeking God. Romans chapter 3 tells us that. There is no one who is a victim because you will notice as we continue on through here that God's wrath of abandonment is that he gives them what? Exactly what they want. There is a willful suppression in ungodliness and unrighteousness and they choose it. And so this morning you might be an unbeliever and you might look at the creation and you might say, I don't believe it. I reject it. Well, God says, actually, you do know. In those moments in your heart, you do know. And you will be held responsible for it before a wrathful God who will not only abandon you to your sin in this life and the consequences of that, but will ultimately bring his divine wrath for eternity upon your head. And so this morning we recognize that it is because of God's special revelation through the word of God that the gospel has been made known. And today that we can come through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing that he died on the cross, was raised again, that he paid the price for sin, he lived a perfect life, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that he's coming back, that he is the king to come. And if we do that, if we will accept these truths and come by faith and the power of gospel will not only rescue us from the wrath of today that is being revealed every day but the wrath to come and so as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ we say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ come accept the evidence that God has given and bow your knee to him let's close Heavenly Father, these are hard truths. And we only know that through a work of the Holy Spirit can we accept them. As we see our lost loved ones, we ache for their salvation and we ache for them to come. And as we look around the world and we see so many who are on their way to hell, we recognize 
that there has been a willful choice on their part, that you have given them enough that if they would respond, you would give them more. I pray that you would give us not only a heart for the lost, but a willingness to accept your ways and to take these truths and to believe them. And we pray that if there's anyone here that does not know you, that they would today see the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is, that they might see the truth that you have been revealed, and that they might take the gospel that is offered, that the righteous man shall live by faith. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.